Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 36 years we have engaged in reflection and dialogue on key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. All forums are free and open to the public, and information on upcoming events can be found online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. My name is Megan Gage Finn. I'm Executive Associate Pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of tonight's forum. It is my pleasure to introduce to you our guest speaker. Glennon Doyle Melton is the founder of the online community Momastery, which draws nearly a million readers each day to her candid and poignant observations on marriage, motherhood, faith, addiction, and recovery. A New York Times best-selling author, her books include Carry On, Warrior, and the newly released memoir, Love Warrior. She is the creator and president of the nonprofit organization Together Rising, which has raised almost $4 million online to provide support and assistance to families in crisis who have nowhere else to turn. A speaker in high demand, she has shared her insights into life's challenges and blessings with businesses, universities, faith communities, nonprofits, women's and parents groups, and now tonight with you. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Glennon Doyle Melton. My sister really runs this show, and um, she only tells me what I need to know because I get really nervous about things. So she just sent me a text about half an hour ago that said, you might want to know now that the previous speakers in this um, forum have included um, Ellie Wiesel and um, Maya Angelou <laughs> and um, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. <laughs> so that's awesome. Um, so, while um, we might usually start with a prayer at a place like this, I think we might actually want to start with just collectively lowering our expectations. <laughs> Are we there? Okay. Okay. All right. We're good now. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. So, Glennon, there is a storied history here of incredible people who have stood in this pulpit to okay. share their stories. But I'm wondering, as we raise our expectations to hear the incredible story you have to share, would you share a little bit of your journey with us tonight, please? Sure, sure. So where I usually start is um, 15 years ago. Um, 15 years ago, I found myself sitting on a cold bathroom floor, shaking from terror and a vicious hangover, and um, holding a positive pregnancy test. And it was not a happy moment for me because I'd been lost to bulimia and alcoholism and drugs and all the things. Thanks. Um, for, I guess, 15 years at that point. And I, like most addicts do, I just burned every bridge in my life. And I was so sick and so broken and so alone. And still something about that test just read as an invitation to come back to life. So I did what I do when I don't know what to do. I called my sister. And I said, um, I think I'm ready. I think I need to get better. I think I finally want something more than I want to be numb. I want to be a mom. And so 15 minutes later, she came to the bathroom, and she knocked on the door, and she picked me up off the floor, and she took me to my first recovery meeting. And you guys, I just sat in that meeting and listened to these people's stories, and I just felt like, oh my god, these are the first honest people I've ever met in my life. Like, these are my people. I love these people. I mean, they were all jacked up, too. Yikes. <laughs> they were honest, you know? And I thought, oh my god, maybe if I could do life this way, like, maybe if I could do life this honestly, I could be like a sober, vertical grown-up, you know? But I, the problem was I didn't know how to be a grown-up because I dropped out of life when I was 10. So when I was 10 um, is when I became bulimic. And 
I just kind of dropped out of life and into addiction. And I think what addiction is really is just a hiding place. I think it's just a hiding place where sensitive people go to kind of shield ourselves from, from pain and love. And it works, like we can't be touched by anyone there. The only people that can hurt us are ourselves, so we control our own pain. But the problem is that we don't grow there because the only thing that grows us is love and pain, right? So that's why when you know someone who's coming out of addiction, when they come out, they actually act like the same age that they went into the addiction, right? So I was a 25-year-old, 10-year-old pregnant lady, which was like a debacle and a half. So I didn't know what to do, so I just decided I'm gonna like look around at the world and I'm gonna try to find um, women who are adulting well and I'm just gonna copy them, you know, just like. And so my criteria um, for finding women who were um, being successful grown-ups was I looked for women who were wearing scarves. <laughs> like you, right there. You, yeah. Because I just felt like, like if you're the kind of person who like, I don't know, you get up early enough to like put on an outfit and then you look in the mirror and you're like, you know what this outfit needs is a scarf. <laughs> and then you have, I guess, bought a scarf at some point and you know where to find said scarf, like in the closet on a, a scarf hanger, I don't know, and you find the scarf and then you put it on and then you know what to do with it, like that action, I don't know. And, I just felt like if you were doing all of those things, you were just crushing life, you know? <laughs> so, um, so I followed you people and I um, copied you and I actually became a scarf wearer. And then I became um, a mother and then I became a wife. I know some of you do that in the opposite order, but whatevs. Um, and, then, um, and then I became a writer and then I became a speaker, and I became this like activist, and I just became and became and became because that's how we think we're supposed to grow up, right? Like we just put on like costume after costume after costume. And then one day I was in therapy four years ago with Craig, and um, he revealed to me that he'd been unfaithful to me our entire marriage. And it just felt like this eviction from my life. You know, like all of these things that I had become like this perfect wife and like mother of these well-adjusted children and writer of, by the way, I was a relationship expert writer. <laughs> so I figured that was over. <laughs> um, so I felt like, you know, those Russian nesting dolls? We just like spend our lives like putting on these bigger and bigger and bigger costumes and then we think that's growing up and then this day comes in our life where we figure out, oh my gosh, it's not at all about becoming things, it's about unbecoming all of those things that we've become so that we can get back to that little more solid being that we are at the bottom that can't be changed and isn't a costume, right? So that eviction, I know because I've been to rock bottom so many freaking times that every eviction from our life is also an invitation, right? But we have to like stay in the pain, we can't numb out of it. So what I did at that time is I went back to therapy for the millionth time. And um, what I discovered in therapy was that I was having some intimacy issues. So intimacy is the church word for sex. But we aren't allowed to say sex because God doesn't know about it, so. <laughs> so, I think, I know that these like intimacy, the sex issues started for me when I was 10 years old, so I think what happens to a lot of little girls is that we are all born body, mind, and spirit whole, right? And the healthiest of us live out um, lives of the mind, intellectual lives, and lives of the spirit, spiritual lives, and lives of the body, physical lives, and all three of ourselves are equally divine. But what happens to little girls is that we get so many confusing and aggressive and objectifying messages about our bodies that we actually become ashamed of our bodies, and you cannot love or claim something that you're ashamed of. So we just vote our bodies off the island, right? We agree with the world at some point that our bodies are not divine vessels of love and wisdom, 
but that they are objects, right? And that their worth comes from their shape, not from their existence. And what that looks like eventually is that we are people, we women, who we don't even know um, what we desire because we're too busy worrying about how to be desired, right? And we don't know what we want. All we know is how to be wanted. And we don't even care what we feel like. We just care what we look like, right? And that's how you become the objects instead of the subject of your life. And then the boys are over here, and they're born whole too, body, mind, and spirit. But if the world tells little girls that good girls don't hunger, don't want, don't desire, the world tells the little boys, brave boys don't cry, don't feel. Right? So they vote their emotions off violent. And I know these are generalizations, but I'm just saying it because it's always true. And then we marry each other. Lord, have mercy, right? <laughs> God, what a system. So it's like everything that the world teaches us about femininity and everything that the world teaches us about masculinity makes it virtually impossible for real women and real men to love each other. Right? So that's what happened to us. And um, it was like Craig was trying to love me with his body, but I didn't live there. And I was trying to love Craig with my mind, but he didn't live there. We're just missing each other. So I go to therapy, my therapist says, Glennon, you can't save your marriage. Nobody can save their marriage, but you can save yourself, right? Who knows if this will be a redemption story for your marriage, but we can make sure it's a redemption story for you. So what we have to do is make you whole again, okay? We have to like vote your body back on the island. We have to have a reunion. And I said, that sounds really hard. Do you have any more pills? Because <laughs> that's what I always say every week. And she said, um, no, Glennon, we're going to do the work. We're going to do the work. <laughs> Always with the work. So, um, so what that looked like, the work this time, um, looks like that I ended up in yoga. Does anyone do yoga here? So, OK, all right. So you have yoga in Minnesota. So. Um, <laughs> So I love yoga now, it saved my life, but I hated its guts in the beginning because it was like so woo-woo and all like body stuff and I didn't get it. But I felt like something kind of magic was going on there, like kind of like a recovery meeting, so I kept coming back. So this one morning, it was just a nightmare of a morning and Craig had moved back into the house and he was living in a separate room and we were just trying to pretend that everything wasn't as terrible as it was and I was just trying to keep the kids like busy enough that they wouldn't notice how sucky our life was, you know? Like my entire parenting strategy was, look, an eagle! It's fine, everything's fine! Um, and it was just like a disaster of a morning and I just couldn't stay in the house, so I went to yoga. And I got to yoga and my regular, regular instructor wasn't there. And so they sent me to this other room. And I sat down in this other room and it was four million degrees in the room, you guys. And I was just so mad because my life was so hard already. And then now I didn't have air conditioning, you know? And I just was feeling so sorry for myself. And then the yoga instructor walks in and she goes, welcome to hot yoga. And I was like, what fresh hell is this? I'm purpose, right? You're doing this on purpose. So but it was like too late to get up. So you guys, on the worst day, I seriously felt like the worst day of my life. And then the yoga instructor goes like this. Now we're going to set our intentions for the class. Because it's like a yoga thing you have to do. And the first lady, I kid you not, on this day where I'm already in tears and my entire life is falling apart and I'm hanging on by a thread, she says the following. My intention is to radiate sunlight to all satient beings. <laughs> so my intention is to stab everyone in this room to death. Death, death. <laughs> death, death. So we go around the room and everyone says something like that and she gets around to me and I said, I was already like bawling. And I said, look, my intention is just to stay on this mat and handle whatever is about to happen here without running out the door. And the room got really quiet like this, and the, the instructor said, okay, honey, you just be still. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna do that. So, <laughs> so 
So I thought it would be easy, right? And I sat down on the mat, and for 90 minutes, I sat in the um, one million degrees. And what happened was that it wasn't easy at all. It was so hard, because I think it was the first 90 minutes that I'd allowed myself to be fully human without a single distraction ever, maybe. And so all of the things that I was trying to run, to run from and numb myself from came up, right? So like every ghost that I had pushed under my bed when I got married popped up, and every single terror I had for the future of my family came up, and all my anger and rage. And it was like this sadistic game of whack-a-mole where all the moles are your worst nightmares, but there's no freaking mallet, you know? And so I just sat there and cried, and um, I made it to the end of the class, though I survived it, feeling it all, feeling all of my pain for the first time. And at the end of yoga, there's this thing that happens where you just get to lay there for two minutes. I think that's why people do it. They should just do that the whole time. And call it a nap, and everyone would come. We would all come, right? So, so I'm sitting there. I'm like still crying. I can't believe there's any tears left. And the yoga instructor walks over, and she leans over to my ear, and she goes, that was the journey of the warrior. And I was like, yoga is so weird. I don't even, what, what? So I just like picked up my mat and walked out and I went into my minivan and started driving home and then I had this weird deja vu moment. And I ran back to my house and I opened this book that somebody had given me called When Things Fall Apart. And I opened up to this page and read this part that I'd highlighted but didn't understand until that moment in yoga and it said this. If you can sit with the hot loneliness for 1.6 seconds today, when yesterday you could only sit with it for one, then that is the journey of the warrior. I just sat on the floor and read that and read that over and over again and I figured out, oh my God, that's what I've been doing since I was 10 years old. So when I was 10 years old is when I first started having conscious negative human emotions, right? Like starting to notice my anger and my fear and my loneliness and my otherness and my envy. And because we only talk about shiny, happy emotions in our culture, I thought there was something wrong with me. Right? I thought these were things to be ashamed of, certainly nothing that other people were experiencing, and definitely something to be numbed or fixed. So the amazing thing about this world is that the second we start feeling our hot loneliness, the world starts showing us easy buttons, right? You remember those Staples commercials where the second something would get stressful, this red easy button would come up and you could hit it and be transported out of your stressful place into this pain-free existence? So the problem with transporting ourselves out of our pain is that we miss all of our transformation. Because everything that we need to become the people we're meant to be is actually inside of the hot loneliness. Right? So when we easy button our way out with whatever it is for you, food, booze, shopping, unkindness, sex, now it's for everybody. It's scroll, scroll, right? So the first time, the second we feel our hot loneliness, we're like, you know what I need to do? I need to check on that guy I knew in second grade and see how his vacation to Bermuda is going. <laughs> Whew. And we're numb again, right? And we forgot what we were so upset about before. And we treat pain like a hot potato, right? We're like caterpillars that jump out of the cocoon right before we would have become butterflies. Because pain actually is not a hot potato. It's a traveling professor. And the wisest people I know say, come in and sit down and do not leave until you've taught me what I need to know. Right? We are all afraid of the wrong things. Like We are afraid of pain, but we were made for pain. What we should be afraid of is the easy buttons. Right? The easy buttons are what keep us from becoming who we are meant to be. You guys, if we change the way we feel about pain, we would change our parenting completely. I was at a parenting convention recently speaking because Amazon once said I was a parenting expert, so I just have to go to things and make stuff up now. <laughs> it's awesome. It's kind of like right now. Um, and um, this woman raised her hand during the Q&A, and she said, Glennon, she's crying, and she said, Glennon, my family is broken, and it's done. There's no way to fix it. And my little boy is in so much pain. And every day I look at him and I think, oh my God, it was my one job to protect him from pain. And I couldn't do it. And I feel like such a failure. All the other moms are crying too. And I said, hold on, okay, give me three words that you would use to describe the kind of man you're trying to raise. And she said, I want him to be wise 
and I want him to be kind, and I want him to be resilient. I said, okay, well then what is it in a human life that creates kindness and wisdom and resilience? It's pain. It's the struggle. It's not not having anything to overcome. It's overcoming and overcoming and overcoming. Right? So is it possible that we are trying to protect our kids from the one thing that will allow them to become the people we dream they'll be? And is it possible that we all feel like failures because we have the wrong job description? Because it was never our job nor our right to protect our children from pain. It's our job to point them directly towards the pain of their lives and say, that was made for you and you will find your wholeness and purpose there and let me see you walk through it. Again and again, you're a warrior, you can do hard things again and again, so that when we're gone, they can do it themselves. You guys, if we changed our feelings about pain, we would change um, our friendships. I, every single day I hear from a woman to whom the worst has happened. She's lost a partner, she's lost a child, she's lost. And then on top of that comes the second loss, which is that she loses all of her friends, right? People just fall away one at a time. And that's not because her friends were bad people, it's because her friends had the wrong job description for friendship. Because if you ask her friends why she, they stopped showing up, they will all say some version of this. I just didn't know what to say to fix it. As if grief is something to be fixed, right? Grief is holy just like joy. Grief is just the price of love, right? It's the receipt that we hold in the air and we say, look, I paid the price. And the last thing that someone in grief wants someone to do is come in and try to snatch that away from her with all the platitudes we use when we can't be still with pain, like it's darkest before the dawn and God doesn't give you anything more than you can handle, which we're gonna like make you sign things when you leave that you're gonna stop saying those things because <laughs> even if they're true, they're just not helpful, right? Ever, never, no times, right? <laughs> Zero times in the history of the world have they ever been helpful. And so what we need is not people who will fix our pain, but for people who are brave enough to be still in it with us, right? Friendship is not about fixing each other's pain. Friendship is just two people sitting around not being God together, okay? Friendship is this. And you guys, if we change our thoughts about pain, if we ran towards it instead of away from it, we, were, we will find our, the only two things we need down here, which are purpose and connection. Okay, so this is something I hear at least once a day from someone in my inbox or in a letter. Oh, I can't go there, it'll break my heart. I can't talk to her, it'll break my heart. I can't read that, it'll break my heart. As if our hearts are these things to return to sender like completely perfect and unused, right? So because of my work with Together Rising, I get to go around and meet with like the most amazing world healers on earth and they all are different in many ways but the one thing that's the same about all of them is that all of their work started with a broken heart, right? Like my friend whose heart bleeds for animals and she's started shelters all over the country or the women that I met with recently who all lost babies at birth and have banded together and formed this mommy militia and, and they have lowered the rate of stillbirth in their state by 27%, which the doctors told me is impossible but they do it because they don't run from their heartbreak, they run towards their heartbreak every single day. And because they do that, they found their purpose here, right? They're on fire. And the other thing they found is their tribe. Because if we don't avoid our heartache, right, if we don't run from it, but instead we treat it like what it is, which is the best clue of our lives for what we're supposed to be doing down here. Because what breaks your heart is different than what breaks your heart, than what breaks your heart, and what breaks your heart. So when you ask yourself what breaks my heart, and then you go towards that work, and you find the other world healers doing that work, you find your tribe. Because there's no bond that's stronger than the bond that happens between people doing the same world healing work together. Right? So in order to do this though, in order to run towards the pain instead of away, we have to believe we can take it. The reason we think we can't take it is because um, we hear stories all day from the world that tell us we can't take it and we should numb our way out of it. And that is because the world is trying to sell us easy buttons. That's its whole job, right? Is to tell you that you're not sad because life is sad and you're not depressed because life is depressing. You just need these countertops. <laughs> right? 
and then we just keep buying and buying and buying because you can never get enough of what you don't really need, right? And it's an excellent way to run an economy is to make women think they're weak because um, the weaker you feel, the more you'll buy. But there's another story about pain that's been told by every single um, great spiritual leader who's ever walked the earth, right? Which is that your pain is meant for you and utterly crucial to your story, right? So like Buddha who had to leave his home and go through so much suffering to get to enlightenment, or Joan of Arc who, who rode her horse right into battle to get to victory, or Wesley from The Princess Bride. who said, life is pain, highness, and anyone who tells you different is trying to sell you something, <laughs> right? Or Jesus, who's my fave. I like worship the guy, you guys. <laughs> right, so, so Jesus had all these disciples. There was like 12 of them, and um, so there's some leaders here. I'm gonna butcher this. Don't say anything, they don't know, all right? Just, <laughs> So, so there's like 12 of them, and there was this one named Peter, and he was like a spaz and just completely clueless all the time and very slow, um, and I love him. And um, so the night before the crucifixion, he finally figured out what was going on, right? Everybody else knew what was going on, but he figured out like the last hot minute. So, so he runs over to Jesus, and he's like, oh my God, like literally, it's good. <laughs> Um, so I just figured out what's going on. You're gonna get killed tomorrow. Like, you, this is, you're gonna get crucified. And um, so you're God, so you don't have to have this situation. Like, we can just hightail it out of here, ixnay on the crucifixion K, like, let's bolt. <laughs> um, so basically he was like, here's the easy button of denial, of running, right? And we know that Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me. That pain is meant for me. It is actually the most important part of my story. Because for Jesus and for every single one of us, there is no glory except straight through our story. Right? And there is no resurrection without the crucifixion. And every single one of our problems come from trying to get resurrected without allowing ourselves to be crucified first. Right, the pattern of life always and forever more will be first the pain and then the rising. First the pain and then the rising. And so our jobs as warriors is to believe that we were made for it, right? And to every day wake up and don't run from but run towards the pain of our personal lives and the pain of our relationships and the pain of the world and find our purpose and wholeness and tribes there. The end. Sorry, that was long. Thank you, Glennon Doyle Melton. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Megan Gage Finn. I'm the executive associate pastor and moderator of tonight's forum with guest speaker Glennon Doyle Melton. While the ushers collect the questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard here in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, and the co-sponsors of tonight's forum, Westminster's Women's Ministries, the online news source MinPost, and Hennepin County Library, with funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. We invite you to join us for our next forum on Tuesday, October 25th at 7 p.m., when Bishop Jean Robinson will explore the topics choices and the end of life. 
Further information is available on our website, westminsterforum.org. Glennon Doyle Melton, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present questions from the audience. <laughs> Glennon, you recently wrote, Glennon, you recently wrote, I am not a mess. I am a deeply feeling person in a messy world. What words do you have for deeply feeling people and those who love them? I feel like I'm in jeopardy. <laughs> what is? Um, yeah, so deeply feeling people. Okay, so I'm a sensitive person, super sensitive person. And um, what sensitive means is just able to sense, okay? <laughs> so it's like really nothing to be ashamed of, right? So we've gotten to this place where people think a synonym for sensitive is weak or like the opposite of sensitive is brave, but actually the opposite of sensitive is insensitive. So I don't wanna be that, right? Glad to be sensitive. I think that, I just tell a story about being sensitive. So my grandfather was a coal miner and um, he and his mining friends would go down into the mines each day and it was really dangerous work because there was really high levels of toxins in the air and um, their bodies weren't sensitive enough to register the toxins. So what they would do is they would bring a canary down with them into the mines. And the canary's body was more sensitive, was able to sense the toxins. So if the toxin levels got too high, the canary would stop singing. And if the miners didn't get out of the mine, um, the canary would die. So this was before PETA, because yikes. <laughs> I'm not saying I support the practice. I'm just reporting what happened. Okay. Um, so, so what I really think is that the world is the mines and some of us are the canaries, right? And actually in most cultures and all throughout history, <laughs> the canaries in every culture are identified and revered and understood to be a little bit different and a little eccentric, but also invaluable to the tribe, right? These are the shaman and the medicine men and women and the clergy and the poets the seers, the prophets. These are the people who um, can see things that others can't see and feel things that others can't feel. And, um, and so they're a little bit different, but um, they are also like the people who stand on the bow of the Titanic yelling, iceberg, iceberg, and everyone's like, we just wanna keep dancing, you know? <laughs> so, um, so I have a canary, I'm raising one, and just to give you a brief example of what it's like to raise a canary, it sucks, it's really, really hard. <laughs> Um, and so recently, it's Tish, all right? And so recently, um, Tish's teacher accidentally told her about the polar bears, that the polar bears are losing their homes because the ice caps are melting. So everyone else in the class kind of rolled with this information and just went to recess. Um, but Tish, um, listen to me closely. She has not stopped talking about freaking polar bears for months. And um, we have posters of polar bears now on the walls. And we've adopted four polar bears from some website that I'm sure is a scam, but I don't care. <laughs> and I actually had a friend write me a fake email telling us that the polar bears are all fine now. Everything's fine. <laughs> because I just couldn't take it anymore. So the other night we're in bed and um, I'm reading to Tish and it's like almost the promised land, which is like, oh my God, she's almost asleep. I'm out the door, you know? And she goes, mommy. And I'm like, oh, what? So I go back to the bed and I'm laying down with her and she goes, the polar bears. And I'm like, oh, hell no, no. <laughs> and she says, it's just that no one cares. So. It's the polar bears now, but next it's gonna be us. And then she fell asleep and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, the polar bears. Because I'm like, she's right. She's upset because it's the end of the world, okay? She's not crazy, she's a canary, she's not broken, she's responding to a broken world. She's yelling iceberg, iceberg, and the rest of us are like, we just wanna keep dancing, right? So for our canaries, it's hard to raise a canary, and I know that, and it's hard to be a canary, but we need to value our canaries too, right? To tell them that they have a really special place in our culture, um, and to teach them that it's hard to be a sensitive person, but it's also magic. Thank you. Yeah. We talked a lot about pain and living into the pain and moving through the pain. 
and as a parenting expert, as uh-huh. you uh, have declared, or Amazon has declared you to be. So uh, when you're, you have daughters, so how do you point your daughters toward the pain, especially when you're not with them, when they're mm-hmm. experiencing their pain away from you? How do you, how do you teach that? You've modeled it, but how do you help them move through their own child pain? Well, all right, so here's the deal. I'll tell you who I ask for my parenting advice from is Liz Gilbert, because she doesn't have kids, and I just feel like <laughs> the only people who are like sane enough or like have enough sleep to give good advice are people who don't have children, okay? <laughs> so, so when all of the divorce stuff started going down and all of that, I wrote, Liz and I write back to each other like novels all the time. And I wrote to her about how scared I was for my kids and how this is the one thing that I never wanted for them and how I was broken for them. And she wrote me this beautiful letter and she said, listen to me. You're in an airplane right now with your family, okay? And there's a lot of turbulence, okay? This is a rough time for your family, tons and tons of turbulence. What do we do when the flight gets rocky and bumpy? We look at the flight attendant, right? And if she looks fine, we're fine. If she looks scared, we freak out. (laughs) Okay? So Liz said, you're the flight attendant right now, Glennon. And what I'm going to demand that you do is just keep serving the freaking peanuts. (laughs) Okay? So I can't fix my kids' pain. My kids have pain that I'll never have. I don't have a family that got busted up early. That's interesting, right? Sending your kids on pain journeys you've never been on? Because our paths are different. But what I do know is that this pain is what will turn them into the women that they're gonna become. So my job is not to tell them with my being or my face or my words that they can't handle it. Right, my job is to say, I see your pain, it's real. I also see your strength, it's bigger, right? We can do hard things again and again forever. Thank you. I think this idea of forgiveness and living into and through pain can be kind of twin sisters. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're all given opportunities for forgiveness. You certainly have had a big one. Oh my God, I've had so many opportunities. It's been awesome. (laughs) Just please bring me more. I just. So how have you, Glennon, lived into this forgiveness, pain, mess? <laughs> um, it's the Hillary thing. <laughs> I can handle this because I've got stamina. Okay. Um, So here's the thing I've learned about forgiveness. When when I I went through all of that infidelity stuff with Craig, which was four years ago now, (laughs) there was something in me. I was so full of rage and anger that I knew I had to get myself to forgiveness for myself. Like, I could not handle being myself. I was so angry. I wanted to, like, crawl out of my own skin, okay? So that's why I did all of the work and and figured out over time that actually Craig and I are exactly the same, right? That I used easy buttons to get out of my pain for the first half of my life. And the thing about pain is that it demands to be felt. Somebody will feel it. So if if you don't feel your own pain, it doesn't go away, you just pass it on to your people. Right? So I didn't feel my own pain, so I passed it on to my, ki- my family, my parents and my sister. Craig didn't feel his own pain, so he passed it on to me. We were the same, right? So I got to that place, I really did. And that's what Love Warrior is about, where I thought, oh my God, I mean, forgiveness is just realizing we're all human. That's it, right? And that we're all, okay, like Maya Angelou said, I am human, so nothing human can be foreign to me, right? Whenever you say, I could never do that, <laughs> Just wait a year, right? (laughs) But what I also learned and what I came to is that you can forgive someone completely 
and you can even love someone, and you can decide not to be married to them anymore, right? With forgiveness, forgiveness is just freedom, right? You can make all kinds of decisions. Forgiveness does not mean necessarily I will be bound to you forever, right? Sometimes forgiveness means I love you, bless you, <laughs> right? So um, that's where I am now. I am, I, do you guys hear that Craig and I are divorcing? Bomb. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and um, I think we would both tell you, I know we would both tell you that we both feel like our marriage was a raging success, right? That we met each other broken human beings and we leave each other wholer and kinder and braver and better. Um, and we are going to be some kind of family for sure, forever, um, but we're both gonna do it outside of the marriage, right? And both of us are really, really happy. Really happy. And one more thing. So when I was um, separating from Craig and even now, I would say once a week I get some kind of shaming message from somebody in the church. Okay, um, because there's, there's this idea that um, in some churches, I'm sure not this one, but in some churches that, um, that a woman leaving a man is the same as a woman leaving God, right? That's not true. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> not at all. Like, the amazing thing about God is that you actually can't leave God, even if you want to. So, like, God is magic. Like, God can be in, like, two places at once. So, <laughs> so if you decide to leave a man, God just goes with you, you know? Um, and, and, and I can't find any place in the Bible where it says Jesus came to save marriages. He came to save one soul at a time, right? So if you have to choose between your soul and your marriage, you take God with you and you just go. Is that okay? Yeah? We're cool? Okay. Good. You may have just answered this question, but <laughs> someone has really shared an important part of herself, and I'd like to offer her question, and I know you'll have something wise and resilient and kind to say to her. I'm wearing a scarf, but I don't feel like I'm crushing life. Mm. Life is crushing me right now. I've been in an abusive marriage for nine years, and mm. I need your best advice. God. All right, here's what I know, you guys, is that Scarf Lady, um, you already know what to do, right? So whenever a woman says she doesn't know what to do, she just doesn't want to do the thing that she knows to do. Right? And so what I would assume would happen is that you would get really still and you would let that knowing rise up that always does, right? That knowing that's not like words, it's like gravity. When we're still in that voice, it's not a voice actually. It's like lead, you know? And it just tells us what to do one thing at a time and what the fear voices are gonna come in and tell you, but I can't see five, um, five weeks down the road. But my family, but my kids, but my, but my, but my, the, the, the fear voice will do this. And what you have to do is you have to stop worrying about betraying your religion or your husband or your children or your reputation or this or that. And you just have to decide not to betray yourself. Right? And all self-betrayal is is allowing the fear voices to drown out the still small voice that knows what to do next and will never tell you the five-year plan, ever. I've begged. <laughs> but will always forevermore tell you what the next right thing to do is. And so you just get up every day and you just say, give me today my daily bread. And what happens is that day you'll get exactly what you need to survive. 
And then the next day, the same thing will happen. And the next day, the same thing will happen. And then someday you'll be free. Be still and know. I love you. Glennon, we've had a lot of questions about the election. <laughs> now we're getting into it. Um, our country is polarized. There's no way around that. We're three... I haven't noticed. Yeah. <laughs> we're three weeks away from what has proven to be you know, the most contentious, most polarizing, most vicious election season ending. So how do you regularly engage with people who disagree with you? Who oh. challenges you? Sorry. That's not the question I they wanted. They want to know. They asked. It's <laughs> a sucker punch. Um, I'm going to answer a different question. So. <laughs> Jesus, help me love my enemies tomorrow. All right, so here's the deal. This is what I figured out. I've, I've stopped being homicidal about the election, okay, like two days ago. And I'm serious, I just had this switch because I figured out this is the best thing that could have ever happened to us, okay? We are a country who's been like so sick for so long, right? We've had like misogyny and racism and homophobia and Islamophobia and all of this like bubbling underneath our skin, right? We knew it, it was there, we knew it, it was there, but we couldn't see it. What has to happen for a person or a sick country to start healing, to start rising, is that they have to hit rock bottom. Thank you, Mr. Trump. <laughs> and so what is happening now is people are awake. Right, have you noticed? All the women, all the minorities, all the people that, for power to stay in power and not have to share power, what does power have to do? Keep everybody below the power separate from each other, right? All power has to do is keep us afraid of each other. It's the oldest trick in the book, right? And so our job as people of light, so the two most repeated phrases in the Bible, fear not and remember. Okay, remember means recall an old idea, but what remember also means is the opposite of dismember, right? Like what we are right now, we are one human family, but we are scattered, right? And our job is to remember, to come back together by any means necessary, right? Come back together, pull back together, remember. And the way we do that is fear not. We do not listen to anybody anybody who suggests that there is an other that we should blame all of our problems on, right? That is the second oldest trick in the book. <laughs> easy button, easy button, easy button, easy button. We need to stay on our freaking mat in this country and work out our problems, all right? Um, how do I love my enemies? I just say, bless your heart. <laughs> Look, this country is gonna need a lot of healing after this election, right? And I know that like, th th this is true about me, is I was in the van the other day with Chase talking about something, and I was talking about judging. And he said, well, mom, you judge too. You just judge judgy people. But right now, I just feel like I have to be really fierce for like a few more weeks, and then I'm gonna be kind and forgive my enemies. <laughs> like November 9th. I think we'll all be working on that same yes. challenge with you. So you talked a lot about tribe, and you just talked now about, you know, we're all, can be so separate and disparate from one another, especially in this political climate. But how, how have you found your tribe, those, mm -hmm. those true friends who haven't drifted away? And how do you suggest others might find tribe when they feel isolated or different or separate? Yeah, okay, so I actually don't have a lot of friends. I don't, I have like a lot of people, right? And I have like four 
or five um, people who are, are in my family, and I have one best friend um, who, I mean, they're almost all like contractually obligated to love me. Like, I don't know, <laughs> not my, th it's actually sad when I think about it, but um, I'm not awesome at friendship. Like, I can't text people back. I don't understand all of the um, things you have to do to maintain friendships. I can't do all the things, right? I can be like a mom and I can be um, a, a career woman. I was gonna say I can be a wife, but actually I was not awesome at that. Um, but friendship is hard for me. I can tell you that the way that I have found my tribe is through figuring out what breaks my heart, right? I mean, that's what we do at Monastery. We just come together all the time and we tell the truth. And I can tell you that I have felt the love of strangers so deeply and profoundly in my life, like sometimes more than I can feel the love of somebody sitting right across from me. Um, so you are my tribe. Don't text me, though, because I can't text back. <laughs> I mean, also, I think, okay, so there's this, you guys know what carpentry is? It's like the thing with the boards and the nails. Jesus was one. Um, so there's this term in carpentry called sistering, okay? And do you know what sistering is? You guys, this is a real thing, okay? So, so the building block of carpentry is the joist, okay? And um, a joist is just like a corner that holds a load on top of it. And every once in a while, the joist gets weak. And um, what the carpenters do when the joist gets too weak for, for the joist to carry a load on top of it is that they bring another board and they put it to the right of the weakening board. And then if that doesn't work, they bring another board to the left of the weakening board. And with the, with the board to the left and the board to the right, the joist becomes um, strong enough to hold any size load. And they named that process sistering. I, I just want to be present for like the time that the carpenters decided that. Like they're like, oh god, this looks like too close for us. We don't do this. <laughs> we'll call it sistering. Um, and you guys, I think that's like life, right? It's just every once in a while, the, the, the load on top of us gets too heavy to carry alone. And the mistake we make when that happens is that we think we've made a mistake. We think we went wrong somewhere and that's why life is getting too heavy and hard. But life isn't heavy and hard because you're doing something wrong. It's just designed that way. Because if life didn't get too heavy and hard, you would never ask for a sister to come to the left of you. And you would never ask for a sister to come to the right of you. Because we're so stubborn, we do it all ourselves. And then we would miss the most amazing part of life, which is needing and being needed, right? So if life gets too hard, and the beautiful thing about sistering is you don't have to say the right thing. You just have to stand there and be strong. <laughs> the end. So people, you've started your, you know, your beautiful story with the reality of addiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you shared that with us, and we have a lot of questions from our audience, you've named a whole manner of addictions, not just yours that you've experienced, but things that we think we can all relate to. So does addiction ever get easier? And how do you not keep reaching for the addiction of the easy button? Yeah, um, I don't know if addiction gets easier. So first of all, when it comes to mental health, whew, mental health is a tricky one, okay, because um, we mentally ill people. <laughs> we, um, we are the only people, we're so frustrating, and I know the people that love us are so frustrated by us, and one of the things I hear over and over again, right, she's like, ha <laughs> from people who love us is why won't they, why don't they wanna get better? Like why won't, she won't take her medicine, she won't go, and it's so weird, it's like the only disease that, um, where the people are so resistant of getting better, of their treatment. And that's because um, we are the only people who think that we secretly believe that the thing that, uh, that is making us sick is also where our magic lies, right? right? So like, I'm not supposed to say that, I get in trouble for it all the time, but it's just true, okay? So the sensitivity that led me to hide in, ad in addiction for so long is, is the same sensitivity that makes me a really good artist. And the um, anxiety, I call it my fire, my therapist calls it my anxiety, whatever. <laughs> fire. 
um, that leads me to be fearful sometimes is the same fire that also makes me a relentless advocate for women and children, right? The depression that just knocks me out like every six months, no matter whether I'm doing all of my things that I'm supposed to do or not, is what makes me have fresh eyes all the time. Because anybody with depression knows that when it you build up your life, you build up your wisdom, you build up all of your personality and your things, and then depression comes along and just erases you. Right? It's an erasing of everything. You can't even remember who you are or what you loved or what made you laugh or anything. And the amazing part of that is that if you can make it through that time, if you can remind yourself it passes, you start over. With beginner's mind, right? Spiritual gurus spend their whole lives trying to get what we get for free because we are mentally ill. Um, no, I don't think addiction will ever be out of my life. I have addictive personality. I can get addicted to anything. Um, I'm trying to get addicted to better things, right? Um, I will always deal with depression. I'll always have my fire. Um, I just think that what can happen with this fire that we have is that if we learn how to manage it, it does not have to be extinguished. It can be the thing, the fire that we use to light up the world. Right. Then we have one last question, and it's from a young person, a 13-year-old in the audience. And she asks, what advice do you have for young girls? Oof. All right. Our girls are canaries in the coal mine right now. They always have been. Right? I remember being in the mental, I was in the mental hospital in high school because nobody knew what to do with me. Um, and I remember sitting with my friend who was my um, roommate in the eating disorder unit. So she was anorexic and I was bulimic. So she would like hide all her food and bring it to me and I would eat it all. <laughs> it wasn't a perfect system. Um, and I remember sitting with her and her mom during a family therapy and her mom saying, why won't she eat? Why won't she eat? And even as a 16-year-old, I, I remember thinking, what do you mean, why won't she eat? Like, all our culture tells girls is that the way to be a successful girl is to not have an appetite, to not desire, to not open your mouth for eating or speaking, to become smaller and smaller in body and mind and idea until you just disappear, right? She's not crazy, she's a canary. She's actually responding very appropriately to the very real messages that the culture is teaching her. So the first thing that little sisters need to do is to be able to see the toxins. Okay, we can't really fix them all, but we can at least see them. So when I'm with my little girls, I was with Tish and Anna at the mall the other day, and we passed this um, Victoria's Secret poster. It was like from the floor to the ceiling, this lady with like boobs out to here and this waist like this, face just looking so angry. I don't, I'm like, she doesn't want to make out with you. She's angry. Like she just, she just wants to watch House Hunters and go to bed like the rest of us. So like a while back, I would have just like turned Tish away from that and, and tried to scoot her past it, but that is not the right thing to do because then we're leaving our little girls to figure stuff out on their own that we can't even figure out for ourselves. So now we look directly at it, right? So what I did that day is I turned Tish towards that poster and I pointed at it and I said, Tish, what is a, body, is a woman's body for? And she always says something different. She'll say to run, to paint, um, to play, to hug, and I'll say, is a woman's body for selling things? She'll go, no. I'll say, that's why that feels bad to you, because that's a lie, right? Not because there's anything wrong with you, baby, but because there's something wrong with that. And that's the difference. When I was little, I saw all this crap, and I knew there was something wrong, there was something wrong. I just thought there was something wrong with me, right? I took it inside, and it turned to shame. Lies either go inside and they turn to shame or they stay out and they become anger, right? So what we need to raise are little girls who are not ashamed but are pissed.
Thank you, Glennon Doyle Melton. Thank you. <laughs>